We are now approaching what is known in architectural terminology as the keystone in the long and storied arc, or I suppose arch in this case, of Ronnie James Dio's musical legacy. The keystone is the apex of the vaulted arch, and the final stone to be set in place, which allows the entire structure to bear weight. It's not the final album we'll cover, so don't worry, but we are getting close. So do worry. And the reason I think it's useful to view Dio's solo debut as the keystone or capstone of his career is because, like the final piece of an architectural vault, its existence gives purpose and meaning to the placement of all future and subsequent stones which make up the long, slow curve of the construction as a whole. For example, I imagine that anyone listening to the first Elf record in 1972 would have a hard time predicting what the first solo record from Ronnie James Dio would sound like. Iron Man wouldn't. Uh, yeah, hi, Iron Man. Um, okay, one, I thought that we talked about you not coming into the studio while I'm recording the podcast, and two, we're all aware of your unique life circumstances. You don't need to point out every example that doesn't apply to you. Iron Man just wants accuracy. I understand that, Iron Man, and I appreciate you trying to keep me honest, but you know, you're kind of a lot lately. Iron Man doesn't know what you mean. Oh, really? You don't think it's a bit much to time travel into my living room every night this week to tell me the answer to Final Jeopardy during the first commercial break? Iron Man knows you love trivia. I do, but the entire point of trivia is trying to get the answer correctly yourself. I didn't even know what the question was. You just teleported in front of the TV and said, Who is Hubert Humphrey? and then disappeared in a bunch of smoke and lasers. Iron Man told you the question, not the answer. Y yes thank you, Iron Man. We all know the premise of Jeopardy. Iron Man just wants accuracy. accuracy. Right, yeah, no, you said that. What I don't understand is why you just started doing this. We've known each other since I was 12, and you have only said the same four words to me, and only when I was listening to Paranoid. But then, the minute I decided to do a podcast, you start showing up like it's your job. You know, it's a lot of work to edit you out of every episode, and it's just weird, because you've never been a problem in the past. It, it previously. You've never been a problem previously, is what I meant to say. Iron Man thinks you sound chronophobic. Chronopho- okay, all right. Look, I know you don't probably understand this. I don't know if you have, you know, discrimination resolved in the future, but when you say things like that in 2024, you actually make it harder for people who face real discrimination to be heard and taken seriously, okay? Chronophobia is not a real thing. Iron Man is part of the LG. I-R-O-N-M-A-N community. No, you're not. And now you're starting to piss me off because you're talking about people that I love. Okay, those are my friends and family, some of whom are among the most vulnerable members of our society. You are a 14-foot-tall juggernaut from the future made out of pure steel. You're literally the most invulnerable member of our society. Iron Excuse me, Iron Man? I'm still speaking. You see, this is why nobody helps you. We all appreciate what you did for the future of mankind, but I think that great magnetic field also turned you into a real dick. Remember when I tried to take you to MoMA after season one of the podcast, the, the Modern Art Museum, remember that? Iron Man was frisked. Yeah, yes, you had a little bit of trouble getting through the metal detectors, but they eventually let you in, and then, you refused to look at a single painting. You just stared at the world. Iron Man doesn't get postmodernism. No one does. That's kind of the point. But you're the only one to make a big performative statement out of it because everything has to be about you. 
and now you're co-opting the language of queer politics to launder your shitty behavior with zero regard for how that might affect people's lives. I'm, have, have you lost your mind? I, I, I. That's what this is all about for you, isn't it? Well, this episode isn't about you. It's about Ronnie James Dio, and I, I, I has nothing to do with Dio. Well, yet. Iron Man thought this was an Aussie episode. No, it's like my 45th episode about Dio or something, but thanks for listening. Iron Man was just humiliated for Ronnie James Dio. Iron Man hates Dio. Iron Man must unfurl his vengeance. So, I might have gone too far there. Oh my god, did I just inadvertently cause Iron Man to kill the very people he was sent here to save? Fuck yeah! That is so metal! So to speak. I still don't know if that's iron or steel, though. I've heard both. And I'm pretty sure those lasers don't actually do anything. I think he just added them for effect after the fact. Anyway, he'll get over it. But... If he doesn't, thanks for listening. As I was saying before, accurately predicting what a solo Dio record would sound like after hearing the first Elf album would be basically impossible for almost anyone. Fucking Iron Man. But with the benefit of hindsight and Dio's first record as a solo artist as our keystone... A song like Nevermore that I featured in part two of this series suddenly springs to life as the first clear evidence of his future musical trajectory. And in the same way that the past is illuminated by reflected light from the present, so too is the future brought into clearer focus from the vantage point of our current location on the timeline, which is 1983. Dio's ninth studio record, Holy Diver, falls just before the midway point of his 20-album discography and points not only to where he has been and where he is going, but also the musical home to which I think he always wanted to return. And I say that because, as this is the beginning of Dio's solo career, it's an enormous inflection point for him as an artist in ways that are both fantastic and something less than fantastic. Much as I love and appreciate the 10 albums Dio made as a solo artist, there is a noticeable change in the character of his musical project after he leaves Black Sabbath. To any casual observer, say the suburban dad who plays classic rock on the car radio to show his kids what real music sounds like, but abruptly switches stations in response to the opening chords of Bachman Turner Overdrive's You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, because while he insists on forcing the music of his youth that he so desperately pines for during strategy sessions on how to maximize new market opportunities in Southeast Asia for Staples Printer Division, and of course the quiet hours of the night when he lies awake convinced that he can actually hear the sound of time accelerating as it passes him by, He's not a monster, and he probably doesn't really notice the difference between Rainbow in the Dark and Man on the Silver Mountain, in the same way that he doesn't really notice drifting into oncoming traffic while obsessively pressing the seek button in hopes of hearing something off the first Boston record. So don't bother trying to remember the names of those bands, kids, because you'll never have to hear them again. Wow. I just made myself really sad. But those two songs, Rainbow in the Dark and Man on the Silver Mountain, are similar-ish-esque. E? They're both Dio, right? Both more or less live in the world of the fantastical or mythological and employ the eternal symbols of nature to represent subtle shifts in the various states of human consciousness or, as the esoteric aphorism teaches us, as above, so below. But for those of us for whom Dio is not just the other guy from Black Sabbath, or Rainbow. The difference is naggingly conspicuous. In Ian Christie's book, Sound of the Beast, which I bought last year for the explicit purpose of using on this podcast, thanks for finally pulling your weight around here, Ian, I think he gets, well, straight to the heart of just what changed from Mob Rules to Holy Diver. This is from Chapter 4, or IV, titled, Heavy Metal America, 
highways, and video waves. Where Christie says, after leaving Black Sabbath and launching a solo career, Dio simplified his stories substantially for a younger heavy metal audience. Holy Diver reduced lush moral landscapes to simple good versus evil conflicts, using the lyrical duality of Rainbow in the Dark and Holy Diver to raise questions about deceit and hypocrisy in romance and religion. In the sharp contrasts of Dio's imagery, there was always a built-in contradiction that fed adolescent revolt, a black side to every white light, and a hidden secret behind every loud proclamation of truth. Wow. That's a great bit of writing there, Ian. Thanks for showing me up on my own podcast. Never again. It's not that Dio goes from good to bad or smart to dumb, and it's not Metallica deciding that the corruption of justice and the horrors of war might not be so bad once you consider the dangers posed by an evil puppet. Dio hasn't fundamentally changed the formula he clearly believes in, but he has simplified it and broadened it. If we compare the respective opening tracks from Heaven and Hell and Holy Diver, I think you can see what I'm talking about. Both tracks are shots of adrenaline. They kick the album off with a high-energy, up-tempo, go-get-em-tiger kind of vibe. It's not the same tiger from Holy Diver. It's a completely different tiger. It doesn't have stripes. No way to determine its level of cleanliness. And I won't go back over Neon Knights in depth, but remember that's the song about space knights riding lasers into the future. But it's also an allegorical tale about why we sing songs about space knights. Because nothing's in the past. It always seems to come again, again and again, again and again and again. So it's a metaphor about Black Sabbath emerging from the past and charging into the future to defend the realms of heavy metal against the wicked empire of smooth jazz. And here are some of the lyrics to stand up and shout, the first track off of Holy Diver. It's the same old song. You've got to be somewhere at some time, but they never let you fly. It's like broken glass. You get cut before you see it, so open up your eyes. You've got desire, so let it out. You've got the power, stand up and shout. The songs are not all that different in their intentions, and Dio is still using metaphors, he's just not couching them in sci-fi allegory about the ancient metaphysical purposes of human storytelling. If there is a critique to be made, it's that what Dio has gained on Holy Diver in breadth, he may have somewhat sacrificed in depth. The message of the music is the same, but what was once esoteric has now become accessible in a broader sense. And I should also say, I don't think the simplification of the music is uniform. Someone could probably write a dissertation about the layers of meaning in Holy Diver. And someone probably has. If so, send it to me. I'd love to read that. But before we get too far into the analysis of the album, let's get into the album itself. At present, the year is 1983, and Ronnie James Dio finds himself in a place both vaguely similar and vastly dissimilar to where he was just four years earlier. He's just left one of the formative acts in early heavy metal, having either departed of his own volition or been summarily dismissed, depending on the person you ask, and depending specifically on whether or not that person is Richie Blackmore, because he just lies about it. But unlike the despondent malaise through which Dio was waiting post-Rainbow, when Ronnie walked away from Sabbath, he stepped right into a new record deal and the warm, wet, wide-open flippers and bivalve-baited breath of one Walthrop J. Whiskers, anthropomorphic walrus in a top hat, and likely a monocle, and also the chief executive officer of Warner Brothers. In 2005, Dio said of his mindset before launching his first solo effort, I remember being so fired up and so confident in what I was going to do. It wasn't a matter of trying to match the standards of Rainbow Rising or Heaven and Hell, but I still felt extremely confident that I could create a great album of my own. Boy, were you right. He got a five-finger discount on Vinnie Apice when he bounced on Sabbath and, for bass duties, turned to the masked mercenary behind a coup in West Africa that secured mining operations for former board member of Wayne Enterprises John Daggett. And who, in 1976, when asked if he was interested in joining Rainbow, replied, Yes, the Rainbow Rises. Jimmy Bain. Well, if Dio didn't want Bane jokes, he should have hired Bob Daisley. And finally, the 20-year-old... Oh, sorry, hold on. <clears throat> and finally, the 20-year-old former guitarist to Sweet Savage and future guitarist to Whitesnake. 
and from the third largest city in Northern Ireland, Lisburn. The fighting phenom, the magnificent mech, the excuse to try doing an Irish accent on the podcast. Dude looks like a lady, but he's not. It's Vivian Campbell. So, the lineup was set. Dio initially reached out to Martin Birch, who produced both Dio Sabbath records, but he was off producing songs about the Crimean War or Beowulf or something for Iron Maiden. So Dio ended up producing the album himself. As if he didn't have enough pressure already, if this album tanks, Ronnie James Dio will have been fired from both Rainbow and Black Sabbath and immediately driven his solo career into the dirt at age 40, just as the metal landscape is shifting once again, this time into a binary war between thrash and glam. And he can't really pick either side. He's not pretty enough or young enough for glam, and I can name the thrash bands with operatic virtuoso frontmen for you right now. There you go. That was the entire list. He could also tread water and just make Mob Rules 2 Revenge of the Fools. But who are you going to get that can out Iomi Butler, Iomi and Butler? Not no one, son. And of course, Dio is now his own entity. So at this point in the chronology, it's also possible that he takes an artistic left turn after discovering he's lactose intolerant and releases a folk rock album under the name Dio Milk. I said it's possible. Let's not start developing an aversion to the absurd two seasons and eight episodes in, all right? You're all unindicted co-conspirators at this point as far as I'm concerned. Considering the many various paths that led to disaster at this point, what Dio does is absolutely astonishing. After 26 years in the music industry, going from doo-wop to beat rock to honky-tonk, Ronnie James Dio somehow lands at the front of a proto-metal hard rock band, makes a trilogy of stellar albums, one of which becomes an all-time classic of the genre and spawns a new subcategory known as power metal then grabs his booster seat, hops behind the wheel of the OG metal outfit's caddy, and peels out of the parking lot, dropping gold and platinum records in his wake. And on May 25th, 1983, with a new backup band and a butt truck of confidence, Ronnie James Dio launches his solo career with a self-produced album that redefines traditional heavy metal in the 80s goes to number 13 in the UK and number 56 on the US Billboard charts, including two, count them, two top 40 singles. The album is certified platinum in 1989 and two years ago in 2022, it earned a second platinum certification, a feat that to this day eludes every album that Dio made with both Rainbow and Black Sabbath. Oil up that tiger saddle. Strap on your snorkel, Candace. It's time for Holy Diver. I've gone in-depth for my interpretation of Stargazer, Neon Knights, 
the Gates of Babylon, Sign of the Southern Cross at all, but I think Holy Diver kind of speaks for itself, right? I mean, ride the tiger, you can see his stripes, but you know he's clean. Oh, don't you see what I mean? Oof. Do we ever. That could not be more clear, but um, you know what? I'm just going to let Dio explain it anyway, because I'm a little bit worried that if I go first, it's going to be, I don't know, too accurate. And then you might have to start to think that I get the song better than Dio does, and this episode should really be a showcase for his music and not my incisive razor-sharp gifts of analysis. So, okay, Ronnie, give us the Spark Notes version of your little song, and I will follow up with some of the more illuminating details that you're likely to miss. Here he is in an interview from 2005. So anyway, the song Holy Diver is really about a Christ figure who on another place, not Earth, uh, has done exactly the same as we apparently experienced, or supposed to have experienced on Earth, dying for the sins of man so that man could start again and be cleansed and do it properly. So the same thing happened on this other far distant planet. And all the people on this planet are saying to him, you know, they're calling him the Holy Diver. Holy Diver because he's about to go to another place, to another planet, another world, to do what he did in the first, on this place, save people from, uh, from, from their sins, or absolve them from their sins by having himself killed. And the people are saying to him, don't go. It was meant to show just how selfish humanity is, that this one form of humanity on this one world said, no, 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 don't go down there and save anybody else. Stay here. We need you. You're ours. That, that's what that was about. So I didn't even listen to that clip just now, you know, because he's not going to tell me anything that I don't know. But I was just reading my copy of the Bible that I keep on Google because my intuitive sense of the song is that it's really a story about a Christ figure that takes place on a far distant plant. So plant? Oh no, planet. <laughs> I just didn't write down the E because he was talking kind of fast. Thinking, I was thinking kind of fast when I was copying it down. My thoughts, when I was copying down my thoughts on what Dio might have said in that video, which I had on mute. But if I had to boil it down to one sentence, I think Holy Diver, uh, was meant to show how shellfish humanity is. Yeah, people are crabby. I mean, you talk to them and they, they just clam up. Or they're just cray-cray fish. Some have really big muscles, and some, like Ronnie James Dio, are just shrimp. And that's why it's called Holy Diver. Well, you stuck the landing on that one, Quinter. One final note, I think it's fascinating that the song is so resonant considering it doesn't actually contain a chorus. The runtime is dominated by the verse and broken up with two different bridges, one of which contains some of my favorite Dio lyrics of all time. And you can say them with me if you like. Between the velvet lies, there's a truth that's hard as steel. The vision never dies, like some never-ending wheel. Ooh, I liked your vocal phrasing on that. It is unique while still honoring the original interpretation. Well done. There's a recent memorial documentary to Dio, and the title, Dreamers Never Die, is taken from his fourth solo album, Dream Evil, off of the song, I Could Have Been a Dreamer. It's a great film and very much worth the watch. Thanks to Jesse, the delivery guy, for the recommendation. He's my friend on Twitter, and he has his own podcast called Riffwiser, where he plays and analyzes a variety of guitar riffs. It's very different from this podcast because what he does really requires talent. But while I was watching the film, I just kept wishing that they had instead used the lyric I just quoted, specifically, the vision never dies. And I'll talk more about that when we get to our next and final episode in the series, but I just wanted you all to know that I have the best ideas. But back to reality. Oh, there goes Rabbit. Holy Diver, as I mentioned before, was one of two singles to break into the top 40 in the U.S., and in March of last year was chosen by Rolling Stone as the ninth greatest heavy metal song of all time. See? They come around eventually. And just looking at the list of Rolling Stone's top metal tracks, it looks like Holy Diver only got beat out by 2016's Hotline Bling by Drake. And nope, it's just Hotline Bling eight times. Well, at least they like Holy Diver. But this album is not just the title track. 
It opens with the anthemic Stand Up and Shout, kicking the door in for Holy Diver, followed by Dio doing what sounds like a Brian Johnson-era ACDC homage on Gypsy. You gotta stop naming songs Gypsy, y'all. Caught in the Middle, despite its really, really poppy chorus, is a great track with a fantastic bridge into Don't Talk to Strangers, which seems to be a fan favorite, but I don't really get that. It's a solid song, but people talk in superlatives about it, and I just don't love it that way. I love it more like a sister, you know? We're good friends, but she's just too ugly for me. Straight through... What? These words come out, and it's just like they're... Just like they're daggers, but their daggers are stabbing me. Straight Through the Heart is a fucking killer, and sounds like what Ozzy was going for with a lot of the material on his Jake E. Lee albums, but I like this much better than most of that. Invisible is a solid track leading into the other top 40 single, which landed at number 12 off of the support of a weird fucking video that got tons of play on MTV at the time, and which we almost never heard. The story, as Dio and others have told it, is that upon hearing the demo, Dio told the rest of the band that he hated the song because it was too poppy. I guess I didn't blame the demo for Caught in the Middle then. But fearing that the song would alienate a lot of his fans, inviting criticism that he had sold out, Dio grabbed a razor blade and attempted to destroy the tape. Luckily for us and him, his bandmates convinced him to let the song live another day. But as I was saying before, I think this story points to where Dio's heart really was and really wanted to be. He had watched Richie Blackmore destroy the band and the legacy he built to chase pop singles like Since You've Been Gone off of his first post-Dio album with Rainbow, Down to Earth. Since you've been gone, since you've been gone. just want to point out that while that song sounds like a pop rock hit composed by the 1979 version of ChatGPT, Down to Earth has sold less than half the number of copies that Rising has. So, good call on selling your artistic integrity for that one gold record in England. You know Dio's going to have two platinum records in about five years making heavy metal, but you know what, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure you're happy with the decision. Hey, don't forget to tune up that loot for tonight's gig, Richie. Wouldn't want to disappoint both the people out there. But back to the rainbow that currently resides in the dark, I don't know for sure, but my suspicion is that Dio might have then tried to bury that track with sequencing, placing it one spot before the closer, Shame on the Night. But the truth will out, my friends. And while now is when I would usually play it for you, I want to do something different for this track. If you're listening to this podcast, you've likely heard Rainbow in the Dark before. Like, often. And I think my job is to try to frame or illuminate material you may be familiar with in a new way, says the guy who just played Holy Diver for you. Again, I don't have any evidence of this, but I wonder if Dio didn't record his vocal track after his attempt to cut up the tape like he was the song's pimp. Because, wow, what a terrible way to describe something. Because 
A few weeks ago, I listened to the isolated vocal track for Rainbow in the Dark, and Ronnie James Dio is singing this song so fucking hard that you can almost feel him trying to strangle popular music to death in the booth. Hey, two for two. All right. So take a listen, and you can go ahead and hold your breath now, because you're going to need it. When there's lightning, you know it always brings me down. Cause it's free, and I see that it's me who's lost and never found. I cry out for magic. I feel it dancing in the light. It went cold, lost my hold to the shadows of the night. No sign of the morning coming. You've been left on your own like a rainbow in the dark. You're just a picture. You're an image caught in time. We're a lie. You and I, we're words without a rhyme. There's no sight of the morning coming. There's no sign of the day. You've been left on your own like a rainbow. Like a rainbow in the dark. Yeah, yeah. You're a rainbow in the dark. Good God. I mean, good God. Remember when I played Ozzy's isolated vocals during the Sabbath series? Oh, okay, well, I do because I thought it meant a lot to both of us, but clearly I have more invested in this relationship than you do. Ozzy sounds like someone opened a portal to another realm, and now there is a mumbly, alcoholic cryptid telepathically downloading a vocal melody into your face. Ozzy's voice is wholly otherworldly. Dio, by contrast, sounds to me very much like a human, but he also might be the human that opened that portal in the first place using nothing but his voice. If you close your eyes, it's like you can imagine him rending the space-time continuum with that sound. It's just so powerful. And as for its meaning, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, I clearly have the authoritative interpretation of Holy Diver as a movement for mollusks, but Rainbow in the Dark? I just don't know. There are a lot of interpretations out there. Some say it's about his tumultuous relationship with his wife Wendy, as the couple would soon separate but never divorce. Some say it's a song written for Dio's friend and the frontman for Judas Priest, Rob Halliford, as an allegory about the struggles of living a life in the closet, or a rainbow in the dark. And there are many others. But when researching Rainbow in the Dark, one interpretation stood out amongst the rest and captures not just the meaning of the song, but the sprawling emotional mosaic that it curates for any listener. This comes from a man who needs no introduction, but I'll do my best. Charles from Lancaster, California, whose penetrating and profound commentary can be found about halfway down the comment section of what is one of our greatest musical resources in modern times, songfacts.com. This is an absolutely real comment, and I'm going to read it for you verbatim. Charles from Lancaster, California, on Ronnie James Dio's Rainbow in the Dark. Here we go. Rodney's lyrics expose something deep within. Yep. There was a constant search for greatness that he could not comprehend. Rainbow in the Dark, what a profound statement. A sign given to man by the Creator, and a manis purpose trapped in the abyss of Rodney's soul. I shit you not, this is 100% real. I know his keyboardest, that were at his bedside when he died. Dio's last gesture on earth was one where he finally heard the call to heaven and acknowledge his merciful creator. 100% true. Then fell back with a smile and a wave then passed into his true destiny. I mean, Charles from Lancaster, California, clearly knows Rodney better than almost anyone. Doesn't it just sound like Dio to recognize the very moment of his death and then just go out with a smile and a wave? Who, who is he waving to? Were the people present at his death across the room at the time? 
Does he need to get their attention like Bernie Sanders at a debate? Uh, excuse me, excuse me. I am once again asking you to please come closer while I am dying so that when I do, the millionaires and billionaires in this country don't swoop into the room and steal my coat. It just rings true. Yeah, so true. So that's Rainbow in the Dark. And if you recognize the keyboards on that track, you actually didn't. There was no keyboard in the band yet, so the person you hear playing on the album is Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, could we give Ronnie one of those uh, harmonica necklaces like Bob Dylan's got, but put some cymbals, you know, in between his knees there? Yeah, 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 so he could bang them. Maybe an accordion? No, 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 three accordions, and he could juggle them while he's producing and singing his songs. You know, give him something to do. Anyway, the album closer, Shame on the Night, is such a Sabbathy tune. And while Dio has said explicitly that he did not want to just continue what he created with Sabbath, the parallel is unmistakable to me. I think Sabbath is where his heart had been for the last four years, and he probably just couldn't help coming back to that sound for what he thought was one last time. And maybe that's the case. Again, I don't know. And now, friends, beautiful mother punchers, Charles from Lancaster, California, it's time to take a break. But when we come back, we are going to talk about the follow-up album to Holy Diver and do a quick rundown of the next four solo records before we close out the B-side and head on to the final episode in our series on Ronnie James Dio. But we're not there yet. There's plenty of Dio left to cover, and I just know that as we do, somewhere, he's smiling and waving at us like we're his server at Olive Garden, and he needs a refill on his Dr. Pepper. Excuse me. Excuse me. I am once again asking you for a refill. I am literally dying for another Dr. Pepper. I don't know. Hey, your guess is as good as mine, okay? When we come back. You watch the faces. You see the traces of the things they want to be. But only we can see. They come for killing. Hot on the heels of Holy Hiver, Diver, is Dio's second solo record to go platinum, The Last in Line. I already played the title track at the end of the A-side, and the album opener, We Rock, just now during the show break. The album sequencing fairly closely follows a pattern set by Holy Diver, an up-tempo face shredder followed by the album's epic chugging centerpiece, the title track, and first single, which was a top 10 hit in the U.S. rock charts, and so on and so forth. In fact, all three releases, including We Rock and Mystery, land in the rock and singles charts in both the U.S. and U.K., except for The Last in Line, which didn't resonate as well in England because most of them have no idea what a line is. What's a line? I think it's what he calls a cue. Why doesn't he just call it a cue? Why do they call it herbs and not herbs? Well, what do they? Because they don't pronounce all their letters like we do. Now let's go, or we'll be late for our appointment in Worcestershire. Like its predecessor, The Last in Line is an album chock full of great tracks. It tends to get less love than it should, but Holy Diver casts a long shadow. And regardless, it is Dio's highest charting solo album, going to number 4 in the UK and number 23 in the US. 
Dio picks up a proper keyboardist this time in Claude Schnell, who sounds like a sympathetic minor character in a World War II film about an American platoon who captures a pair of Nazi soldiers that also happen to be identical twins. And now the GIs have to reckon with the moral ambiguities of what to do with the siblings when one, Jonas Schnell, is a Hitler devotee and true believer in the cause of the Third Reich, while the other, Claude Schnell, seems only to care about saving the lives of the innocent civilians and those he loves, no one more so than his deluded and menacing twin brother, Jonas. But he's not, he's just the keyboardist on Last in Line. Keyboards have been part of Dio's musical vernacular in the past, and thankfully they don't yet smack of the 80s cliché that I think Van Halen really kicked off with 1984, but they soon will. When it comes to 80s cringe, some of Dio's lyrics do the heavy lifting. Like on One Night in the City, a story about a clandestine meeting in the titular urban setting between two characters named respectively Sally and Johnny. I swear, if aliens discover the remnants of our civilization in the future, they are going to think everyone in the 80s was named Johnny. It's just a planet full of villains from Karate Kid down here. And on Eat Your Heart Out, Dio intones the retrospectively unfortunate line, You've been a bad, bad girl. You've been hungry all your life. So eat it out. I think I'm just going to stop talking about that now. You can hear Dio leaning into the sound of traditional metal, and even the new album at times, echoing bands like Judas Priest and Motorhead on songs like I Speed at Night. You can also hear the softer edges of hard rock creeping in on the third single, Mystery, which I hate and don't want to play on my podcast. The Last in Line is not Holy Diver, but it's also not a bad album. It's good, and at times great, but it also feels like a step toward the albums Dio starts to make in the mid to late 80s, where the conventions of his traditional metal start blending uncomfortably with the deep indigo eyeshade of glam. After the last in line, Dio releases Sacred Heart in 1985, his final solo album to achieve gold certification, likely dragged across the finish line by the strength of his previous two releases because it's not good. And worse yet, if the last in line takes a Dio-sized baby step toward the hard rock tendencies of glam, Sacred Heart takes one giant leap in kiss-sized lifts for mankind. The second single, Hungry for Heaven, is drenched in synth, and its predecessor, titled uh, Rock and Roll Children, is titled Rock and Roll Children, joining the album opener, King of Rock and Roll, on my list of things that are slowly and steadily giving me cancer. What are you doing, Ronnie? And worse even than that, this is the album on which the feud between Dio and Vivian Campbell comes to a head. According to Campbell, Dio had promised the rest of the band that their third album together would be their big payoff if they agreed to take a smaller cut for writing and recording the first two. But again, as per Campbell, when the time came for the big payoff, the big payoff didn't come to them. English is weird, right? Ian Winnick, you with me? And according to Dio, Campbell was barely present for Sacred Heart and, well, that's it. Dio was incredibly tight-lipped about the whole affair, including a 2005 interview with Macaulay uh, Classic Rock, when in response to the prompt about Campbell, everyone was querying your decision to put so much trust in a young guitarist, Dio responded, uh-huh. And when offered the follow-up, 
but that decision was borne out by the results. Dio elaborated, I think so. Okay. Is it because I used the word querying? Yeah, I knew it. I probably shouldn't have worn my historically accurate Elizabethan falconer costume either, but when you're wearing a doublet and breeches, you can't just say everyone was asking, because then you just look stupid. And if you're worried about the peregrine rock falcon perched on my forearm, this thing is taxidermied. Deader than disco, seriously. Look at his eyes. He didn't even move. I should have gone with my 20th century carnival barker outfit. <laughs> Dang it. Amateur. Vivian Campbell, however, had plenty to say about Dio, even as late as 2003 in comments that he later apologized for, and should have. Dio's former guitarist, who joined Def Leppard after the death of Steve Clark in 1991, described his one-time band leader as having an incredibly strong voice and within that niche genre of Dungeons and Dragons and Rainbows and Midgets. You know, the sort of old-school heavy metal? He's an incredible talent, but he's an awful businessman and way more importantly, one of the vilest people in the industry. Wow, Viv. You managed to insult not just Dio, but all of his fans, heavy metal in general, and people born with a growth hormone deficiency. Next time, just find a way to work in homos, gypsies, and the Jews, and you just ran the full Goebbels. But yeah, that description sure does make Dio sound vile. And I know all of what I just said sounds bad, and it is, but let's not dwell on the little negative stuff at this point, because what I am building up to is, I think, way worse. You had to know that was coming, right? I mean, come on, how long have we been doing this? Guys, Jonas, Kevin, you guys have been listening for the whole show. You must have had an inkling. One of my favorite things that has ever been written down is a famous quote by the frequently misunderstood and sometimes dangerously misappropriated German philosopher and guy who legit fell in love with a horse before dying in a puddle of his own crazy, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said in his 1886 treatise on morality, Beyond Good and Evil, one who fights monsters must be careful not to become a monster himself. And the reason that this quote seems particularly apt at this point in Dio's story is that Dio, like most musicians in the 20th century, was fired from the band Rainbow due to the exponential expansion of a former bandmate's ego. And four years later, Dio would again be fired or willingly leave Black Sabbath for not dissimilar reasons. So as Dio charts his own course with what is no doubt an astronomical chip on his relatively tiny shoulder over that very issue, Nietzsche's quote now becomes tragically prescient for him. According to an interview Vivian Campbell did with Interactive Guitar, during Holy Diver and The Last in Line, the band members were in the studio for the entire recording process. But when it came time for Sacred Heart, everyone just showed up, recorded their parts, and left as soon as they were done. Dio's mood had turned incredibly dark as he was going through a separation from his wife and manager Wendy at the time. Partway through the tour for Sacred Heart, Dio fired Vivian Campbell and replaced him with American guitarist and bipedal Labrador retriever Craig Goldie, who apparently Dio felt was a very good boy. 1987's Dream Evil would be the final Dio album to feature Vinnie Apice until 1993's Strange Highway. And having rediscovered the power of fear, Dio summoned the strength to defeat Jimmy Bain during the recording of 1990's Lock Up the Wolves, ultimately quoting Bain's words back to him with, Tell me what the baseline is, then you have my permission to die. At least until the release of the Magica album in the year 2000, when I think it's fair to assume that we'll all get a fresh new batch of Batman jokes. 1990's Lock Up the Wolves was for me a surprisingly cool album. It's very dark and unexpectedly bluesy because, sans Dio, it is an entirely new lineup. Every member of the original Dio band has either left or been fired. And the reason I'm not covering any of these records in great depth is because after Sacred Heart, Dio's popularity starts to plummet. He's producing albums that still manage to find their way into the charts, but this is where he begins to chase the musical trends in metal rather than sparking them. And you can hear that transition happening in real time on songs like All the Fools Sailed Away on Dream Evil, in which Dio emulates the model of bands like Poison and Motley Crue dipping a toe into the mascara-lined pools of glam with what is ostensibly a power ballad.
Hey, some guys look good in makeup. Dio's not one of them. So as the newfound success of his solo venture begins to wane, Dio is going through his second separation and potential divorce. The studio atmosphere grows dark, and the musicians surrounding the frontman become a rotating cast of characters subject to the increasingly desperate demands of the band leader. Sound like anyone we know? To misquote a famous equestrian aficionado, one who fights Richie Blackmore, must be careful not to become Richie Blackmore himself. See? I told you he was off misquoted. Let that be a lesson to me. But two years later, and to misquote another one of my many heroes, the whirly gig of time would bring in his redemptions. As the universe cried out for its legion of the brave to ride once more across the sea of lights, having been called by the toll of the bell again and again and again. Only this time they're really pissed off about some stuff. So look out! Dio is coming back and he has a couple of big things he'd like to get off his little chest. When we continue our holy deep dive through computer gods, time machines, and TV crimes on part six, the final installment of our series on Ronnie James Dio. On the next, and volume for all.